This episode of the hour on the Renewal Ministries podcast network is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, 40 years of Catholic renewal and evangelization. Find out more about Renewal Ministries at renewalministries.net. Dr. Ralph Martin, Peter Herbeck, Sister Ann Shields, Debbie Herbeck, myself, Joey McCoy, and a whole host of what we call country coordinators uh, have been just trying to spread the gospel in whatever mode and manner the Lord provides for us. Roughly 35 to 40 international missions every year, two daily radio programs, this lovely podcast, the longest-running Catholic television show, The Choices We Face. And the newest addition to the efforts uh, is beefing up our YouTube channel. It's been really fun to see. We've, we've added, oh gosh, like 10,000 subscribers in the last couple months um, through a variety of different videos, just trying to bring value to people's lives, speak about what's going on in the current moment. But one of the videos that I want to draw your attention to is, is Ralph uh, found an old prophecy of Father Mike Scanlon. If you don't know who Father Mike is, he's the one who was led by the Spirit to basically transform Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. He was the driving force behind that renewal. And Father Mike, back in 1976, gave a prophecy about what was to come. And like all prophecies, do not despise prophecy, test everything, hold fast to what is good. But Ralph breaks down the prophecy in this video. So if you're interested in it, I highly recommend it. It's very insightful. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty anointed, I think, both the video and the prophecy and worth paying attention to. So just search on YouTube, Renewal Ministries or Ralph Martin, Father Mike Scanlon Prophecy, and you'll find it. Today's guest on the hour is Chris Frank. He is the vice president of Vagabond Ministries, and he just wrote a book called Hope Always, Our Anchor in Life Storms. Chris is married to his lovely wife, Grace. They have five children. And Chris is one of these guys who just has heard the, the call from the Lord. He said yes to it and serving in a particular way, in, in, a, in a particular mission. Vagabond Missions is all about the inner city youth and helping them meet Jesus, fall in love with him, be baptized and brought into a loving family that can bring them closer to Jesus. And so Chris has been an inspiring guy in my life. He's a good friend and I'm looking forward to for you to meet him. But first, my friend, Connor Flanagan. All right, I'm here with Chris Frank. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the hour. Thanks for having me, Pete. This is awesome. You know, the last time we talked, uh, you were not a published author. So that's different. <laughs> that's different. I feel the same, but I guess that's different. Yeah. Congratulations. So, that's, yeah. that's a big deal. I'm, Thank you. I'm, I'm a little jealous. Oh, you have a couple books in you. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see whether or not the Lord agrees, you know, and whether my wife agrees. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's a big deal. And I want to talk about your book at some point, um, but I'd rather start here if it's okay with you. Um, yes. COVID racial tension, the world's going crazy. I just, could I get a little Chris Frank wisdom as to like, where are you at with things? Where are you at with the Lord? What's he teaching you? What's on your heart? What's inspiring you? It's a big question, but I'd love to just kind of hear what God is doing in your life right now in the midst of all that's going on in the world. Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, holy cow. I mean, I thought the first question would be like, what's your favorite color? Um, which is blue. 
Um, yeah, so right now it does feel like the world is falling apart, doesn't it? Um, it seems like I can't get onto a social media feed or turn on the TV or jump online without having something new thrown into my face and trying to push me into, you know, some new oblivion of despair. But I mean, I think through it all, and just to be clear, like I've, I've been through the spectrum with, with everything with COVID and these racial injustices and tensions. And I mean, even in, you know, the, the Catholic world, there's all this drama and ups and downs and divisive language. So I think where I'm right now is just trying to stay focused on Jesus and have my peace remain in my relationship with Jesus, because I think there are some things that we can do to make the world better, but not to sound overly spiritual. The only true answer that's going to bring us to the place where we need to be is Jesus. And as someone who works with the inner city, those that have been isolated and marginalized, those who have somewhat been forgotten, right? And as someone who has like a a health issue, ongoing health issue and a compromised immune system, looking at things like COVID and pandemics, uh, it's easy for me to kind of go down these rabbit holes of what ifs and, you know, these hypothetical situations. And what if our leaders did this? Or what if the government said that? Or what if we kind of came together and came up with some utopian idea that solved everyone's problems? And like I said, I've thought through everything. I'm a classic overthinker. But for the most part, I've had a lot of peace in the last few weeks as I've just kind of settled into the gospel is still the gospel and the good news is still good news. And I think whether we're talking about pandemics or talking about injustice or anything else that we're seeing in the news, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the killer hornets yet, right? They're just waiting to come back. Um, all <laughs> yeah, of these right. different things, uh, the answer, again, not to oversimplify, but is going to start with Jesus and probably end with Jesus, right? Start and end with the Alpha and the Omega. So. So that's where I'm at. And I know that's simple and I'm not giving many details, but I think the profundity is in the simplicity when it comes to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the effects that has on society. I think that's spot on. And I know you well enough to know that you're not, it could be easy to interpret like the classic Catholic school answer to everything is Jesus, right? Like right. any question you have, it's Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And what I know you well enough to know that that's not what you're saying. And anyone who actually knows Jesus, not to get like judgmental if, you, if you're listening and you don't know what we mean by that, but anyone who's met him and, and walking with him kind of gets what you're saying as well, because he becomes the lens by which you view all behavior. He's the, he's the filter uh, by which we now know how to live differently. And so, but, but just to press this point a little bit, Somebody could be listening and saying like, all right, Chris, great. It's Jesus beginning and end. Yep. And for the record, Pete agrees with you. Um, but what would you say if somebody was like, well, how is that just not a cop out to inactivity or um, uh, laziness or or just kind of like, are, are you passing the buck by just like putting it on the almighty God, you know? Right. And, and I would 
agree that this needs that caveat, right? To just say, like, I give you my thoughts and my prayers and not actually follow up with any actual prayer. Uh, or yeah. to say, like, well, I love Jesus, and so that's enough is is a cop-out. And even when I was a youth minister, like, I, I saw this all the time. We'd be in small groups, and I'd ask some question, and some smart aleck kid would say, I don't know, I'll pray about it. And I'd be like, ah, he's right. Like, that's always the right answer, <laughs> you know? And and it wasn't what I was looking for, but it it, it is a cop-out, right? Um, especially if it's an empty platitude. Uh, but the thing is, is that our relationship with Jesus propels us forward specifically to other people and into the difficult moments, right? Jesus may be revolted by sin, right? He may, he may hate sin, but but he loves the sinner. And in the same way as followers, we should try to avoid our own corruption and downfalls, and yet we should be so gentle and loving and compassionate towards those that are hurting. And so when we say, or when I say, that the answer starts with Jesus, that doesn't mean that I sit in my basement and just pray a rosary all day, though that's good, and I should do that, right? It's it's that I pray my rosary and that I pray my prayers and read my Bible, but then I push forward and bring that to other people through not just prayer, but through actions, words, and presence. And so, yeah, I think if if we're praying, that's good. But a true encounter with Jesus Christ also brings forth conversion and movement. I mean, you see that in scripture, right? Like Zacchaeus, right? Jesus has dinner with him. And then Zacchaeus doesn't say like, well, that was great. Same time next week. You know, he has this massive yeah. conversion, changes his life, and gives back fourfold all that he had done wrong. And so in the same way, when we see what Jesus has done for us and we have that encounter with God, it should push us into these moments that society is seeing right now, the injustice, the hurt, the pain. And we should be able to stand in that, not as someone who has all the answers, but as someone who knows the God that does. Right. Because I love that because what prayer does in us is not only personally edifies us and helps us kind of connect with the Lord individually, but transforms us so that when we do enter into society um, in our workplaces and our family lives and everything, we're different. We're different because of it. So like true prayer should change then how we think, act and speak and how we see the world. And all of a sudden things that maybe were um, unclear or non-important become very clear and very important. I think you see that very clearly in the service of the poor, like the Christian, the transformed Christian mind should see the least of these as Jesus and as um, celebrated in a particular way in the kingdom of God. You know, in the eyes of the world, they may be nothing. In the eyes of God, they're everything, just as each of us are. But in a particular way, the Lord loves the poor and the marginalized and the, the abused and the, you know, the forgotten. But it takes a transformed mind uh, to see that. Like one of my favorite definitions of conversion is from Pope Benedict, where he, he basically says, like, conversion is receiving new sight, Mm. um, uh, an illumination. All of a sudden I see the world differently because of what Jesus has done in me. Now, I know you've, you mentioned your life as a youth minister, which is, I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) A lot of counseling needed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, but now in your work as a vice president of, of Vagabond, um, there's, it's a different type of work, similar work in the sense of a lot of times working with youth, but a different type of clientele, if you will. Yep. Um, what are some of the things you've learned or can you, 
could you juxtapose a little bit of like your previous experience or things that you were surprised by as you moved from youth minister life to uh, working with the inner city population? Yeah. So, and just to kind of spell it out for anyone who may not know, I did suburban youth ministry for 10 or 11 years and now do inner city ministry. And and this may be a different answer than what you're expecting, but the thing that surprised me the most about going from the suburbs to an urban setting is how similar they are. And I mean, exteriorly, very different. Everything looks different. The feel is different. But the gospel is still the gospel, and people are still people. And so I was really nervous because anybody who knows me or maybe even listening to me right now could probably tell that nothing about me screams inner city, right? Just taking one look at me and you're like, you grew up in the suburbs. And I did. But when I came into the inner city, knowing I had no street cred, knowing that I was completely out of my element, I was really nervous that maybe I wouldn't have what it takes or I wouldn't be able to connect. And though there are barriers, right? I'm not saying it's easy. And there is a lot that I have to kind of learn and step into still after three years of doing it. Um, the reality is, is that the gospel works. And when I look at what I did in the inner city or what I do in the inner city compared to what I did in the suburbs, it's not all that much different but I would say the extremes are further apart okay. because the the suburbs need God just as much as the inner city, right? There's drugs in the suburbs. There's brokenness in the suburbs. In the suburbs, there's a unique problem where, at least where I was serving, the churches, the teens, the young adults, they could kind of get whatever they needed. And so how do you explain to someone who has everything they want that they need God, yeah. right? They, they were able to fill that void in their heart with the new iPhone or a shiny car or, you know, whatever else they could buy at the mall. And you had to explain like, no, there's a deeper need um, that doesn't have a price tag. Or if it does, it's the blood of Jesus, right? And so, mm. so that was the challenge in the suburbs, in the inner city, there's a natural spirituality because there is a need and a longing for saving, right? Mm -hmm. They want out, they want something new, they need a fresh start. So there's a natural propensity towards spirituality. The problem is, is that sometimes the cards are stacked against them and they don't have the structure, the boundaries, or the people who are really reaching out to show them the way. I mean, if you think, Pete, between you and I, like we could probably acknowledge that we are where we are today because we had people who believed in us, right? A youth minister, a parent, a teacher. Some of the teens that we serve have never had that person in their life. Hmm. And not only that, but then you look at the surroundings that they're in, where there's the violence, the neglect, and the great need for physical comforts, right? Homes, cars, food. Um, it's so tough to overcome that sometimes. And like you said before, it's not enough to just say, well, pray about it, you know, or let me introduce you to Jesus and he's going to take away all of your problems. Um, 
that's that's the tough part. However, in ministry now in the inner city, when you see the light bulb go off and you see them come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, like I said, the extremes are further apart, but it also makes them more intense for bad ways or good ways. So when we baptize a team through Vagabond Missions, it is, it's it's the best thing I've ever done in ministry. Just to see them, to know the, the choices they've had to make, the hardships they've overcome, and the realization that they've chosen Jesus as their Savior, um, and that we as as vagabond missionaries have played a small, small, small role in that, is is incredibly fruitful and encouraging. Um, and so, maybe that's a long-winded answer, but there's a lot of good things happening in the inner city. And just like in the suburbs, um, people in the inner city need Jesus. And so the gospel works. The gospel does the heavy lifting. And for me as a minister in my role in Vagabond, I just try and be present to that grace and to the promptings of the spirit and and let him do the hard stuff. I just try and say yes. Yeah. And I think that's that's huge in the sense, too, of there's really only one Savior. Right. And we... Uh, through our baptism, are called to be his ambassadors of the king, you know, to, to be his hands and feet, to be the body of Christ on the world, to, to preach a gospel of, of uh, liberation and freedom and joy and, you know, salvation and, and healing. But at the end of the day, it's still the Holy Spirit moving. And I think whether you're in the suburbs or the inner city or wherever you are, you know, Alaska, Africa, Australia, at the end of the day, uh, the the person who convicts hearts is not the missionary. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit. Right. And so the missionary's job really, when, when we can be purified in our mission, is to enter into these environments trying to be as transparent as possible, authentic as possible, uh, to be Jesus as best as possible um, in our own unique way, which is kind of the fun of it. I mean, I think there's there's got to be a certain delight in being able to be Chris Frank uh, fish out of water in some of these neighborhoods at the same time being completely there, be- A, because you're human and because Jesus has called you there. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many times, I mean, probably 90% of the time, most of our conversation kind of focuses on how nerdy I am and how out of yeah. touch I am. It's just easy. It's, it's fish in a barrel. You know, it gets the kids yeah. laughing. It gets them engaged. And, and it's true. I'm just out of my element. Um, our missionaries, for the most part, are out of their element. But like I said, it's about being present and and just being available for when that moment of grace is, is there that right. we can introduce them to Jesus. Now, a big part of the scandal of the gospel uh, is the cross, right? Mm-hmm. So the God dying on a, on a tree, stripped yep. naked, uh, suffering. And the a lot of the messaging of the world is all about reducing suffering, running from suffering, medicating suffering. Um, like there's nothing worse than death and nothing worse than suffering that could lead to death um, physically, emotionally, all of it. And yet as Christians, we, we believe in redemptive suffering because of what the Lord won for us through his death and resurrection. I'm curious in your own life, um, 
you alluded to kind of an ongoing physical ailment and, but then also in the lives of those you minister to, how do you model and teach the role of redemptive suffering that avoids, like you said, platitudes or kind Mm -hmm. of false promises of, oh, it'll all be all right with Jesus. But if it's not all right, the suffering continues, he's still good. You know, that kind of that, that combination living in that balance. Yeah. And I think this is, again, where the power of of presence and testimony and witness come into play. Because I think if you would have asked me this question a couple years ago, I may have answered it differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pete, you actually saw me at my worst when I started having these health issues, right? So for those who are listening, uh, I have Lyme disease. It got pretty bad, doing better. Um, at its worst, uh, Pete was there to take me out to coffee at a, at a young adult conference. And, um, and I just told you everything that was going on. And, you know, at that moment, like it was a real struggle because I believed in God. But all of a sudden I had to figure out if I still believed God, right, that he was good, that he was with me, that he was present, because nothing in my world felt that way. And I really had to ask the question, like, what does it mean that God is good? Right. Because it didn't feel good. My life did not feel good. My faith did not feel good. Um, and, you know, whether it was going to prayer or going to doctors, no one ever gave me an answer. My prayer was was very quiet at the time, um, probably because I was just doing a lot of yelling. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and the doctors were, were pretty caught off guard with with, you know, the, the illness and the random symptoms that I was struggling with. <clears throat> um, and I just really had to had to wrestle with that. And, you know, it's easy to attack a prosperity gospel. Right. And, and I, I agree that, that, that the prosperity gospel, the idea that health and wealth is the fruits of a good relationship with Jesus is, is a neutering of the gospel. Right. I mean, the call of the gospel is to come and die and that's harsh and that can be tough, but we fail to see the beauty of not just the cross and what that means to, to sacrifice but we can't forget that the cross always leads to resurrection, right? And so for me, when I was struggling with all of this health and illness and everything else, I realized like the prosperity gospel is so easy to bash until you don't have health and wealth. And then it sounds really good. And yet God's goodness is not in the physical fruits of this world, Though those things can be celebrated when they show up and when we have them. But that when we say God is good, it's because he is who he says he is. And even if he doesn't clear the storms in our lives, he gets into the boat with us. And he weathers the storms with us. And that's really where where I was and where I still am. Because I still have these health issues. I still have these annoyances. And the reality is, is that this Lyme disease won't be the last time I suffer. Right. There's going to be another diagnosis. There's going to be another phone call. There's going to be another thing that just totally catches me off guard. And the reality is, is that in that moment, I can still hope and I can still put my trust in Jesus because he is good, because he is present. He is real and he knows what it is to suffer. He's not blind to it. He's not indifferent to it. And so when we can lean into that and know that he is present in the midst of it, we can find that grace and, like you said, that redemptive suffering 
so that we can actually become more like Jesus. And I think that's one of those things that is um, in some ways easy to say and Absolutely. maybe easy to teach, right? Um, but it it's really impossible to grasp, to like know until you are forced to know it. Right. <laughs> um, it's just like one of those things like you just can't. I remember reading um, a book by C.S. Lewis called The Grief Observed. Mm. And it, it, he wrote it after his wife died and is, is as the title suggests, him just observing his grief. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was so striking to me, and I read it immediately after my dad passed. Um, and it was, what was so beautiful to me was he was saying all these things that like I now understood because I was going through it. Like if I had read A Grief Observed even a month earlier, I'd have been like, okay, yeah, right. makes sense. But because I was like in it, all of a sudden the the truth of the stuff you said, like Jesus doesn't necessarily calm the storm, but he's in the boat or, you know, the, the hope we have in him is made manifest when things are hopeless. Um, it's, it's easy to hope when everything is hopeful. It's truly an act of grace to live in hope when things are hopeless. And, uh, and so I, it's one of those things that the universal condition, everyone is going to die and everyone is going to suffer at some point in their life. Right. The question is how we, we handle it and how we navigate it is, would you say that this is part of the motivation, inspiration for why you wrote your book? Yeah, I think so to a certain degree. And, you know, I started writing the book a few years ago. Um, it was kind of through a couple random circumstances in my life at the time. I just had all this creative energy and not as many outlets as I wanted at the time. And so I would work all day and then I'd come home and I would just have all this energy still pent up and I would, I would just start writing. And then in the midst of the writing, I, I got really sick. So I kind of shelved it for a while. Um, but I think the initial motivation was just through ministry, whether doing inner city or traveling and meeting people in the suburbs or at conferences and retreats, things like that that I started to notice that young and old alike were coming up and sharing some of the struggles of their life. And they were real struggles, right? I mean, real pain, real hurt. But what I noticed is that they seemed to be down and out longer than what I would have guessed or anticipated. Uh, So I'd see a teen and they'd say, I just got dumped. And six months later, they're still hurting, like really hurting. Or, you know, someone came up and was struggling with prayer and was just quick to throw it out the window and say it doesn't work just because they didn't hear God speak in their five minutes of silence, right? And so I started realizing that there was all of these things where we just seemed to be throwing in the towel a little too early. And it was through various circumstances, right? Anxiety or exhaustion or disappointment, trouble with family or or the church. And so I started noticing all these things. And again, real pain. I'm not trying to understate or belittle anyone's situation, but I started to realize that maybe if we could just hold on to hope a little bit more, we'd be able to navigate these choppy waters of life a little easier. And so that was the motivation. And then I think getting sick halfway through the writing was just kind of the icing on the cake 
because all of a sudden these words that I was putting down on paper or at least typing into my computer had to take on new meaning and new flesh for me personally, which gave me maybe a different lens to go back into some of the chapters and some of the ideas and flesh them out a bit further from a different lens. So the title of the book is Hope Always, Our Anchor in Life Storms, uh, available mm-hmm. all over the internet. I saw it on Amazon, but it looks like when I went on Amazon, Chris, there yeah. were only 17 copies available left. So do something about that because people want the book, clearly. Um, I'm just a, a spectator at this point, man. You got to tell the publisher. But yeah, selling, <laughs> selling tens of copies at a time. It's just, no, I don't know. I don't really know. Yeah, you have to start somewhere, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. That's great. Hope always our anchor in life storms. You've pretty clearly laid out kind of your thought on that. Can you give me um, a five-sentence definition of hope? Yeah, I'll give you a one-sentence definition of hope because it's my favorite definition, and I think it's so simple. And it's not me. It's Peter Kreef, so someone much wiser, smarter, holier than me. And he just simply said, hope is faith directed to the future. And I love that because I think we often do confuse hope, right? It's, it's somewhat of a forgotten virtue. Like faith makes sense. Charity or love makes sense. But hope sometimes gets confused or, or put on the back burner because we think it's, it's wishful thinking. Or we think that it's just kind of circumstantial because we find ourselves in a circumstance that either gives us hope or a situation where we need hope. And hope is... A theological virtue, meaning that it was given and infused to us at baptism. And so we have it. We just need to learn how to cultivate it and how to take that faith that we have and apply it to things that have not yet come. Um, the thing I love about hope is when you look at the catechism, it actually says that our happiness is rooted in hope, that our happiness draws itself from the beatific vision. The idea that what we currently are going through is not what will always be. And so we can find hope. We can find stable ground, um, a firm footing, uh, no matter where we are in life. And so that was kind of the reason that I wanted to write about it, because like I said, I think if we can get a better grasp on this virtue and live it through various circumstances, we're going to be able to have a more peace-filled life and that the ups and downs of life that are inevitable, um, won't be as harsh or damaging to our hearts, our minds, our spiritual lives. And so, yeah, for me, it was, it was helpful to write. So I'm hoping that for other people, it'll be, be helpful to read. Yeah. That line you just said really stuck out to me. It's, uh, basically like that, what you're going through now will not always be. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where you also see the connection with faith to believe the promises of God about what will be. Right. Um, but the theological, I mean, I think what's interesting about theological virtues and just virtues in general of sometimes, it, you know, you hear we say we've received it at baptism as if it's like this, you know, this this gift that we're holding, which it is. Right. But like any gift, it becomes actualized real when you live in it, when you do something with it that, you know, like thinking about hope, even praying for hope is is important but it's hope manifests itself in our life when we when we need it you know as we as we step into it so i guess 
question here would be, all right, so I, I love that definition that you gave Peter Kreef. It makes so much sense to me. Um, how, how do you see that in the classic American response to any of these things is always like, how, how do you do this? How do you do it? Give me yeah, some practical, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I think maybe, do you have a story or um, something to illustrate how this actually would play out in somebody's life, how they would live in this theological virtue? So it's not just a construct um, or nor, nor is it just this elusive thing that, Oh, I, I yeah. hope that I have hope, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I don't think it's bad to start hoping for hope, right? Uh, it's it's not bad to to say like I want this, even if you feel like you don't have it, um, yeah. because like you said, a gift is only as good as how you use it. And so we have it, but how do we cultivate it? How do we foster it so it's part of our everyday life? And you know, the thing that I think is somewhat confused about hope is that hope actually begins in the will, and. I think oftentimes we'd guess that it starts in the affections, that, that it's, it stirs us emotionally. When you feel hopeful, even in the midst of a horrible situation, you usually feel pretty good or at least stable. Um, and so I think it's easy to just kind of assume that, that hope is just an emotion. And like I said, though it affects the emotions, it stirs the affections, it actually begins in the will. And so we choose it, we acknowledge it, we take it, and we hold on to it. Um, it's not a passive virtue or at least not at first. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of a good story. The, the book has, has various stories, but I'll try and share one that's outside of the book. Um, and, and this is going to, again, make me and my wife sound holier than we are. Um, but I think one of the times that we had to really choose hope, that we really had to hold on to it and cling to it, was when we uh, had our third third child, uh, my son Caleb, and I don't even know if you know this story, Pete. But during the pregnancy, Grace got really sick, and it was kind of this mess. And at first, the doctors thought Grace was sick. Then they thought it was the baby that was sick, and then they went kind of back and forth. And eventually, they landed on this reality that my wife gets this like really rare kind of like autoimmune pregnancy disorder, which is really dangerous for the baby, not super dangerous for the mom. And uh, the whole idea is that um, you have to let the baby kind of cook, stay in utero for as long as possible. Um, but after after 37 weeks, it gets, it gets more dangerous and the odds of stillbirth go way up. And so... So they said that once we deliver Caleb, my son, um, we'll know right away if this autoimmune disease had, had any issues with him, if it's caused any, you know, kind of negative effects or made him ill. And my wife's health should go back to normal pretty quickly as well. And so they induced at 37 weeks and we went through the, the whole long laborious labor and my son was born and he was great. Everything was perfect. Uh, our doctors were incredible. My wife was just a champion and we had Caleb for about two hours and it was just, just incredible. I have five kids that birth one, he's my only son, but there was something about it too, because the pregnancy was so difficult mm-hmm. that when we finally got to hold Caleb and got the green light that he was healthy, 
it was like we breathed for the first time in nine months. Yeah. It was just this yeah. exhale. And then we, uh, you know, were exhausted and the doctors and nurses were doing their thing. And at some point they said they were going to take Caleb to the nursery to do whatever the doctors do with the newborns, right? Uh, weight, bath, clean them up, whatever test they're going to do. And so it was a long labor, like I said. So they suggested that we take a nap and that we try and catch up on some sleep. And so we did. And the next thing I remember is waking up with a new doctor in the room. My wife was already crying. And they told us that while Caleb was in the nursery, something had happened. He had stopped breathing. They weren't really sure. He turned blue. He was now in NICU. We weren't allowed to see him. And they weren't sure when we were going to get to see him or how long he was oh, going to be gosh. there. It was, it was horrible. You know, Mike Tyson said, uh, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. You know, like yeah, right. that's exactly what happened. Like we had a plan, everything was supposed to be fine and just felt like such a gut punch, uh, like a cheap shot. Um, because he was fine. Like we were told once he was out of the womb, we'd be able to tell right away. Um, but it took a few hours for uh, the effects of my wife's pregnancy to take effect on on him now to make sure that I'm not like just tweaking emotions here. Like he's fine, right? Spoiler alert. Everything's fine. He's good. Um, but in the moment we didn't know that we knew nothing. And, uh, after a long labor, you know, that's the last thing you want to hear. And so we literally were stunned. I remember getting into the hospital bed with my wife and we were just in kind of this anemic hospital room you know, not much going on at like two or three in the morning, but there was a cross on the wall and I can't remember who said it. I want to say my wife because she's holier than me. Um, but she said something like, no matter what happens, nothing changes with us and Jesus. And it was such a, a, a powerful statement in that moment, because when we didn't know what was coming next to just kind of put that out there, that like, yeah, this could go south, but God is still good. Like that was a choice we had to make. We had to cling to hope in that moment when we could have easily fallen into despair. And like I said, everything's good. Everything's fine, right? I know there's a lot of stories out there that probably have a a far worse ending, right? I mean, that's just part of life. Um, But for my wife to claim hope so early in the unknown, was incredibly powerful and helped us kind of stable the the storm um, or, or calm the storm at least um, to where we could at least get our bearings and kind of persevere one day at a time over the next however many days my son was recovering. So, um, so that was, you know, one instance where we had to choose hope, right? And I will say, and you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, like there are things that we can do to cultivate that. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus, or if we're not trying to actively live hope in the small ways, it's going to be very difficult to live hope in those more challenging and heartbreaking moments, right? So the story I just gave was was kind of an extreme story. But I mean, there are tons of opportunities in the day where we can live hope and choose hope um, that will help prepare us for those more difficult moments. But Again, it's not just about us gritting our teeth and trying our hardest. It's it's about praying, being open to God's grace, falling more in love with Him, and uh, really 
developing that relationship um, and that interior life that allows you to to cling to that that virtue in those moments of need. Oh man, what a thank you for sharing that. That that was a that's a part you, I hadn't heard that story before, and um, it is amazing how. I mean, a Grace, what a rock star! Uh, Absolutely. She's that's I mean that's takeaway number one. Uh, yep. Takeaway number two is to be in that moment and to be able to lay hold of something, or in the case of your book, book title, uh, drop an anchor right there, right? Yeah. The midst of life's storm. Uh, it's just very poignant. And it's a great reminder of the, the power we have in our will to make decisions that are difficult or even would be very contrary to what the world or what you would even expect of yourself. Um, if you had probably asked Grace a week earlier, this is what's going to happen. What do you think your response is going to be? You know? Yeah. Who knows where you're at, but the, like the grace sufficient for the moment is there. And our job is to cooperate with it. Um, and what a beautiful example of just remembering who you are. She's a beloved daughter of the King and therefore has hope for, for you, for your marriage, for your son. And, uh, and that changes everything. Absolutely. Hope always an anchor in life storms. Your first, first book, right? <laughs> first maybe only we'll see <laughs> yeah well, we'll see we'll see yeah uh if you could just in one fell swoop say yeah. like what you hope people get from the book or what you hope the book accomplishes what would that be yeah yep so my desire for the book would that would be that it serves as like a uh like a playbook like basic hmm. guidelines on, on how to persevere through various obstacles in life. So the book is not 150 pages of a dissertation. It's not breaking open virtue and what virtue is and what it isn't. I spend a few pages doing that just to make sure we're all on the same page. But what I really do is I just take various circumstances that try and rob us from our hope, right? So every chapter, I don't want to say it's eclectic, but it's a wide range of topics that I try to insert hope into so that if you're struggling with sin or addiction or family issues or exhaustion or or whatever else, um, that you'll be able to see the problem bring hope in Jesus Christ into that problem and hopefully have some practical ways of doing that. So that again, you can, like you said, drop that anchor there, weather the storm and persevere on our way to a deeper relationship with Jesus. All right. And my favorite thing, I'm going to close with this favorite thing. I love to ask people yeah. is um, and I'm going to frame it a little differently because of you're now the hope guy. But what, when you look at your life or when you look at the world, wherever you want to take this answer, any, you know, context you want to put it in, but what is giving you hope right now? Or the way I normally ask it is like, what are you most excited about? What's going on that like gives you energy and joy and like, oh, I, I just, a lot of bad is happening in the world, but this, yeah. this gives me hope. This gives me joy. This gives me energy. Yeah. 
you know, I'll say one of the things that is giving me some hope, um, though I will say that it, um, it's definitely nuanced, right? Because I, I don't want to take away from the difficulty of the moment, sure. but being in the inner city and working with the marginalized, my heart is very much in a lot of the social injustice that we're seeing, but not just in what has been done already and what we've seen online and through clips and on the news, but you know, with all the protesting and rioting, I mean, there's just so much unrest and so many different voices and so much noise. And at least from where I'm sitting, aside from Jesus, there's not a real clear path forward, right? I haven't seen any political leaders come forward and lay out a plan that makes a lot of sense. I haven't seen any movement or organization come out and say anything beyond a couple of catchy phrases. I just don't know where the reconciliation is going to come from at this moment. But what gives me hope is that the conversation is happening, right? That there is attention, that there is unrest, uh, because I feel like right now, for better or for worse, America is galvanized. We are more or less looking at a few things all at the same time. And that hardly ever happens. We are an ADHD nation. And right yeah. now, it seems like our conversations focus on three, four or five things max. And I think when we have a lot of people who are looking and talking into the same issues, even though it's messy right now and it's it's hurtful right now and there's pain right now, if we can all get behind it and really settle into a, a place of unity, I think that we can find some good resolution. But I think beyond that, on a spiritual side, as Christians and as, as Catholics, if we can look at these same things and not just insert ideas and ideologies and paradigms, but prayer and grace, I think that's going to bring, and probably even more needed, right? But bring about real change as well. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I keep hearing people say, I just can't wait till things go back to normal. Um, or I just want 2020 to be over. And I think I understand what they're saying. But I don't want to go back to normal. I want to be present to what God is doing in this moment. I mean, this is a moment in history, right? Like a pandemic happens once every hundred years or so. Uh, you know, these these riots and protests, it seems like it, you know, it's really going places. People are really speaking up. I mean, God is moving in this moment and we're all paying attention to it. We just need to have the right lens, like you said earlier, to see where God is, and then be a part of that. Because God moves towards the broken and he brings reconciliation. And so I want to be a part of that. And the fact that there's so many people who are trying to speak into it, though not always with the Christian lens or Christian language, the fact that we are no longer ignoring the hurt and the pain in this world um, does give me hope. No, I love that. And I think one thing you just said that... Uh, brought to mind one of the things that hope brings about in us is fortitude mm -hmm. um, is courage because if you know what's coming and you know what is here kind of this too shall pass in a certain way uh, mm -hmm. the the courage that's needed to walk the fine line between the necessary change and conversation that needs to happen without selling ourselves short as humans as and as Christians uh, to be able to, to to walk the fine line of being able to push for real change while also not fall into sin 
mm-hmm. which is what we absolutely need to be able to do as Christians, that takes real, real courage because uh, this is a time of loud voices, some of which need to be loud, uh, right. but aren't always, but aren't always um, charitable. And, and yet we also have to be able to listen and we have to be able to, to march when we need to march and we need to be able to kneel when we need to kneel and we need to be able to pray when we need to like, there's, there yes. needs to be more of a, a both and than an either or. Absolutely. And, um, and that takes a lot of courage to be able to see that through Jesus's lens and then act in it. And Amen. That, a lot of that comes from hope, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah. Everybody go buy the book, Hope Always, Our Anchor in Life Storms. You can find it on Amazon. Pauline Books is the publisher. Um, hey, man, we'll be praying for you, for your work, uh, and for your kids, and for that wife of yours who obviously is an anchor in your life. Absolutely. And um, not in the negative connotation that <laughs> <is> sometimes <laughs> yeah. seen as. We'll just edit that part and, out. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that's that's yeah. for the editing board right there. I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll redo this ending, you know, when it's when it's a little better. But all right, brother, we'll uh, talk soon. Okay. Thanks, bro. Talk to you later. That was Chris Frank, good friend, good brother. I always enjoy my time around him. We've interacted at several different conferences and Catholic events. But I first met him at a, a young adult conference in Milwaukee, actually. And shout out to Pete Birds for making that happen. But I heard him give a talk on the book of Ephesians. And I remember just being riveted by the examples he was giving, but the way he was breaking down this this book that I had read before and unpacking these insights about St. Paul and this community in Ephesians and Paul's heart for this community and what he was hoping for and his prayer, especially right in the middle of the book, the tone shifts dramatically when Paul says, "I, I bow my knees before the Father. And he has this just this beautiful prayer for the community that he founded. And and Chris just opened my eyes to that. And I've always been grateful to him for that. But then just getting to know him and uh, his wife, Grace, and and their family, just wonderful people. And um, so glad he was able to join us on the podcast. One of the things he was talking about, though, that I wanted to highlight was, um, you know, he, he made mention of the fact that in some ways he's the ultimate fish out of water for the community to whom he's been sent. He's been called on mission into a group of people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have anything in common with or any reason to spend time with them. It reminded me of Acts 20 where Paul has this line, uh, he has this little uh, exhortation um, and it happens to be in Ephesus and he's talking to the elders of the church, and he says this. This is chapter 20, verse 17. You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is just like reminding the elders of his 
authenticity because he's about to prepare them for the fact that he's going to be going. He's going to be going to Jerusalem probably to be arrested. And um, or I think at this point he actually already is arrested. And he's, he's basically like warning them that there are going to come others after him who are going to try to preach a different gospel. And he's, he's saying, one of the reasons you can believe me, brothers, is because I was authentic with you. We cried together. We suffered together. We, we preached together and, and I was with you. And he talks about in other places where he just, you know, he was alert with them. He, he didn't covet anyone's silver or gold. Um, he, was, he was in with the people of Ephesus. He even mentions for three years, uh, he did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Like he just, he truly entered into the community. And I think sometimes we think of Paul as this paratrooper who just dropped into these various cities, preached for a minute, and then went somewhere else. And some of the, yeah, certainly some of his missions, he spent less time than others in particular places, but always with the hope of so integrating with the people, witnessing to the uh, to the love of Jesus in his heart, and, and, and truly kind of laying a foundation that he, when he felt called to move to the next place, he was leaving behind something that had been built up in his own image, certainly in the image of Christ, but the, the, the DNA of Paul seeps through these communities and he wants to remind people of what that looks like. That I was with you. My hands are dirty with the, the soil of Ephesus. I didn't just kind of skim across the surface. We went deep together. And the reason I bring that up is chances are not all of us are called to go serve Ephesus or, you know, the inner city of Steubenville, Ohio or or wherever else. We all have our particular mission. But the mission needs to include some level of authentic, human, sustained connection. Where we roll our sleeves up. Where we demonstrate staying power. And uh, you could easily flip this around at me, Pete, and say, like, Pete, you're, you're a preacher. You go over the country and talk. And like, yeah, that's true. But we're trying to, even with ID, we're trying to build things that are lasting, that have deep roots. And even here in Ann Arbor, my wife and I, Kate, we're, we're trying to have a home life that's that's bigger than ourselves, that our neighbors, in particularly right now, we feel called to our neighbors, to, to bear witness to who Jesus is, to the people who live right next door to us, out of love for them and out of love for, for the, the call that the Lord has given us. And so I just would encourage you that one of the things our world desperately needs in this hour is people who are authentic, and, but who are um, consistent and who are willing to kind of go deep and to get a little dirty in the sense of like, let's get some dirt under our fingernails because we're working the ground with the people around us. That we don't think we can just spread this seed of the gospel and then never water it, never tend it. Scripture talks about some are called to spread, some are called to water, some are called to harvest. I get all that. But where is the Lord calling you to go deep with somebody? Where is the Lord calling you to roll up your sleeves and really walk with people? Uh, if it was good enough for St. Paul, you know, it's good enough for me. All right, so that's uh, this episode of the hour. Um, I'm going to be on vacation with the family over the next couple weeks, so I'm not quite sure how each episode over the next couple weeks is going to come out. We're kind of taking a couple mini vacations. So the intention is to continue to roll out new episodes every week. But be patient with us. And if you uh, if we don't have a new one in a given week, just go back and listen to one of the old ones or, you know, 
There's plenty of other podcasts in the sea, as they say. All right. I'm Pete Burak. We'll see you soon. This is The Hour. God bless.